Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Cardio nerds, Kareen here. In light of the current COVID-19 pandemic, Amit, Dan, Heather, and I have decided to take a break from our regularly scheduled broadcasting that includes Heart Failure Awareness Week and instead hope to shed some light on the cardiovascular implications of coronavirus. There is so much that is still unknown, but that is part of the art of medicine, the need to constantly grow and evolve as we gain more information. In that spirit, we're organizing a series on COVID-19. We sincerely believe that every cardio nerd should pay keen attention for these three reasons. One, patients with cardiovascular disease are at higher risk of infection with COVID-19 and once infected, develop more severe complications. Two, as with other viruses, COVID-19 appears to lead to cardiovascular complications. And three, given one and two, cardio nerds will be among the key providers in the trenches. And my friends, we cardio nerds promise you that we will be working hard to bring to you the best of what we know at the current time. However, the constant flow of information is honestly dizzying, and our knowledge base continues to evolve. This episode was recorded on March 16th, 2020. But by tomorrow, we may very well know something new, which is why this time period is both a very exciting time for science and a reason why Everyone should endeavor to stay up to date with professional organizations like the WHO and CDC, as well as local and federal government officials. And guys, for our first episode in this series, we are honored to sit down with Dr. Oscar Singolani, the director of the Hypertension Center at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, to help work through new information relating to old medications and his thoughts on navigating this uncharted territory. And friends, just remember, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The goal is to simply enjoy learning more about cardiology in the COVID era directly from expert cardio nerds. Hey, cardio nerds. There are so many unanswered questions surrounding COVID-19. Information, both good and bad, is flooding our TVs, Twitter feeds, newspapers, and PubMed searches. This timely episode is meant to help guide clinicians on the front lines doing their best to take good care of their patients. Today, we are so grateful and excited to learn about the interplay between ACEs and ARBs with COVID-19. We are so excited to be joined by Dr. Oscar Singalani, a true expert on this subject matter. Dr. Singalani earned his medical degree from the National University of La Plata, Argentina, and completed his internship and internal medicine residency at CEMIC, Buenos Aires, Argentina, and Hypertension Research Postdoc Fellowship at Henry Ford Hospital, Detroit, Michigan. After completing his internal medicine residency at the Reading Hospital and Medical Center in Pennsylvania, Dr. Singalani joined the Johns Hopkins Hospital as a cardiology fellow where he remained on faculty after his training. He is currently the Associate Director of the Johns Hopkins Hospital Cardiac Care Unit and the Director of the Hypertension Center. Dr. Singalani's research interests focus on hypertensive heart disease and its transition to heart failure. 
Honestly, guys, Dr. Singalani is one of my most favorite people to work with, and he's so beloved by all of our fellows. He's as cool as a cucumber during the most stressful times, and his work-life balance is something to strive for. Besides for all of his academic accomplishments, Dr. Singalani is a passionate sailor and master photographer. Dr. Singalani, I can go on and on, but thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks for uh, such a kind introduction. I'm I'm very happy and honored to be part of Cardio Nurse. Oh, this is <laughs> we are more honored than you. <laughs> yeah. The the pleasure and honor is truly ours, Dr. Singalani, and we are so glad that you're here right now because we can definitely use your advice for our next case. Sarah S. Covids is a 29-year-old woman with a history of familial dilated cardiomyopathy with an ejection fraction of 25%, status post-primary prophylaxis single-chamber ICD. Her doctor, Dr. Spikes, listened to CardiNerd's episode number 13, in which Dr. Randall Starling taught us all about guideline-directed medical therapy in HEFREF. Accordingly, Ms. Covids is on lisinopril 20 mg daily, metoprolol succinate 25 mg daily, and spironolactone 25 mg daily. In the clinic, Dr. Spikes is about to discuss switching her from lisinopril to secubitril valsartan, but she walks into the room as Ms. Covids is having a coughing fit. It turns out that she ominously returned recently from a family cruise and has been having a few days of fever and cough. Recognizing this scenario, Dr. Spikes immediately dones personal protective equipment and activates her hospital's COVID action plan. Aye, sounds suspicious. So the burden of cardiovascular disease has been high in patients affected with COVID, with hypertension and diabetes concurrently being the most common comorbidities. There are two recently published papers, which we will reference on our website, finding increased risk of COVID in patients with pre-existing cardiovascular disease and diabetes. Zhu et al. published a paper in The Lancet recently that included a retrospective description of 191 COVID-19 patients. In this cohort, 30% had hypertension, 19% had diabetes, and 8% had coronary artery disease. Another publication by Guan et al. of about 1,000 or so COVID patients in the New England Journal found that of the 173 individuals with severe illness, about 24% had hypertension, 16 had diabetes, and 6% had coronary artery disease. It's hard to really deduce causal inferences without prospective data, but there's a lot of talk about the biological plausibility that individuals with hypertension and or diabetes may be more predisposed to contracting COVID-19. The basis of this plausibility is the role of angiotensin-converting enzyme 2. Dr. Singalani, what is ACE2? What is its role in the SARS-CoV-2 biology, and could this contribute to infection in those with hypertension or diabetes? All right, Karin, that's a very interesting question. And as you said, uh, the data suggests that patients with hypertension and diabetes and also coronary artery disease were more severely sick than others. I think that to begin with, and before getting into the age, we need to make sure to know that these are studies coming from a single country, very sick. And if you look into those patients who are sick, regardless of why they're sick, the majority of them will have hypertension, diabetes, and coronary artery disease. We don't know exactly how many of these were taking ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers, but some of those are certainly taking them. The problem with this, and let me start by the chasing uh, this from the get-go, there's an enzyme that converts angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2, and that enzyme is called angiotensin-converting enzyme, or ACE. There's another isoform of that enzyme, which is in, called ACE2, that is also in the lungs, and it has some actions that protects the lungs, but it's also a receptor 
in the pneumocytes type 2 that facilitates the entry of the coronavirus to the cell. And this happens when the coronavirus through a protein that is called S, that is this little, you know, rounded ball in the, in the crown, uh, touches the ACE. And that, together with another protein, a protease called TMPRSS2, together they internalize the virus into the cell and they fuse the ADN of the virus with the, the nuclear information of the virus with the cell and then propagates the infection. So mm-hmm. ACE inhibitors, as well as ARBs, all the drugs that ends with uh, Sartan and all the drugs that ends with Pril, are known to produce an increase in ACE2 levels. Mm-hmm. So in theory, if you think that the virus needs ACE2 to penetrate and infect the cells, and these medications increase ACE2 levels, then naturally we need to think that this could be bad for us because mm-hmm. it might propagate infections. But that is not as simple as it sounds. So first of all, all this data comes from animal studies. And uh, if we take, for example, a mouse that uh, we knock out ACE2, that means that genetically they don't have ACE2, those mice have lower contractility, they have high angiotensin II expression, and they don't have ACE. But those mice, even though they're less prone to develop viral infection with the prior COVID virus, the 2002-2003 virus, uh, they were more likely to develop ARDS because ACE2 has a protective mechanism that I'm going to explain in in a bit. So let me tell you that first, not only the data comes from animals, mainly from rodents, but second, there's controversial studies suggesting that it could be worse in the theory, but in practice, animals exposed to COVID virus treated with Losartan develop less ARDS than uh, those who were not. So now we can, if you want, we can go uh, and tell you and complicate matters a little bit more. Yeah. So there are two states in the in humans and patients. One is a low angiotensin II state, and the other one is a high angiotensin II state. So angiotensin uh, one is cleaved by the ACE into angiotensin II, and whether you have high or low angiotensin II levels. The mechanisms between angiotensin II and ACE2 is a little bit different. For example, in cases where you have naturally low angiotensin II states, and this is, for example, in a patient who takes ACE inhibitors, those patients, by blocking the conversion from angiotensin one to two, they naturally have low angiotensin II. So that, in that scenario, angiotensin II binds to the AT1 receptor, and the AT1 receptor binds to the ACE2. And that ACE2, because of that catalytic site, is occupied by the angiotensin 1 receptor, produces more of a substance known angiotensin 1 to 7. And that angiotensin 1 to 7 seems to protect from ARDS, protecting inflammation and protecting vascular permeability. So that per se is a protective mechanism. On the other hand, if you have high angiotensin II, which is if you stop the ACE inhibitors and let angiotensin II go high, two things happen. First of all, angiotensin II goes to the cortex of the uh, adrenal glands and produces aldosterone. Aldosterone lowers potassium and elevates sodium, producing hypertension. Well, guess what? 
those patients who did the worst and who died had higher blood pressure than those who recovered, and a third of those have hypokalemia. On the other hand, when the angiotensin II levels are high, that angiotensin I receptor that I told you, it binds with ACE2, it separates, allowing the virus to bind to ACE2 and internalize the cell. So this is a paradoxical response. And number three, and something that we are uh, also trying to report uh, in the next few days, is that if you look at aging rodents, the older you are, the less angiotensin II you have. So you can argue that actually the elderly gets more severely infected because they have lower ACE2 levels in their lungs, and then therefore are more prone to developing ARDS. Another hypothesis, and the gene that codifies for angiotensin for ACE2, the gene that uh, is responsible for ACE2 is in the X chromosome. So women have more ACE2 levels than men for that reason. Well, guess what? Women tend to be less infected and less severely infected than men. So this is another mm, reason fascinating. To yeah. that this could be something particular. In fact, there are trials ongoing in the U.S. right now that are treating patients with mild corona COVID-19 infections with losartan to see if that can protect them from becoming severely sick. So again, all this is based on a single hypothesis, and most of the data comes from mice. So what happened in humans? Well, guess what? If you measure from blood ACE2 levels, it doesn't matter if you're in an ACE or an ARB, or in nothing, your ACE2 levels are the same in plasma. We don't know what happened in the lungs, but in plasma, we know that there's no major difference. Mm -hmm. So this is a classic example where one can think of a hypothesis, but until we have more data, we cannot tell somebody with heart failure or with a prior MI, or even with hypertension, to stop their medications now, because we actually don't know what's going to happen. Talk about Jekyll and Hyde. So it sounds like ACE2 has the propensity of increasing infection by virtue of being the portal of entry, but then also may have a protective effect against some of the more severe complications. Correct. That's exactly correct. So therefore, if a patient is already on an ACE or an R prior to infection, they may, may be more susceptible to catching the infection. But once somebody has the infection, there is a potential benefit of actually being on an ACE or an ARB because you... Yes, that was, that was what I was thinking last week. But now that we know that most of the people who are 30 years old or younger I, are actually infected but asymptomatic, probably is not about getting infected. Maybe everybody gets infected the same degree, but those who are, you know, in, the, in that age range, about 60, they really get more severely sick. And those are the ones that we are testing the most. So it might be that it doesn't matter if you have ACE two levels high or low for the infection. You might actually have a little bit of base two, and that's enough to get you infected. But one thing is for sure, if you do not have ACE2, you're more likely to develop ARDS. At least that is what the animal data suggests. So, so far, I am just using common sense. If you are on a medication because you have heart failure, the prior MI, or hypertension, why stopping it? If, because you can actually do worse if you get the virus, but it, actually you can do worse if you don't get the virus because, you know, you can have more heart failure decompensation or, or something, you know, related to high blood pressure. So I, you know, we don't know how long this 
pandemic is going to last. We might be talking about from a few months, hopefully, to a year or more. And are we willing to leave our heart failure patients without ARVs or without ACE inhibitors for for a year? Uh, I don't think so. So until we have more data out, knowing all these complex uh, mechanisms, we should probably follow the guidelines and the consensus statements from the AHA, ATC, and European Society of Cardiology, all of which are actually recommending to continue with treatment with these medications. And I think it's worth emphasizing again, Dr. Singlani, you were saying that all of our understanding of how treatment of hypertension with ACEs and ARBs impact ACE2 levels really is derived from animal data. And the only data we have from humans is suggesting that maybe it doesn't have an impact to begin with. Correct. Correct. I think that that's very, very true and, and very important. The difference is that you know, all, all the trials that we've done in humans were preceded by animal data. Um, but we have the data in humans that took time. The problem is that now we are in this emergency that we don't have time, so we need to be very cautious in, in how we act uh, upon this. Uh, I think that we need to wait, uh, and we will have some more information. I know that the Chinese uh, and Italians are looking into this, and we're going to hopefully have more and more data coming soon. Wow, that is incredible and fascinating and really reminds us that you can't latch on to one side of a pathophysiology coin until you really appreciate the fuller picture. And sometimes that means waiting it out and going with what we know and then actually implementing treatments based on what we know, what is tried and true, and then eventually exploring other options. But it seems like you make a good point. If we pull everybody off of such, you know, life-saving medications for heart failure, we may not even anticipate the damage that we could potentially due to our patients who we know would get real benefit from these medications such as ACE and ARBs in patients with chronic heart failure. Absolutely. And I will also underscore the importance of clinicians, you know, reaching out to basic scientists and vice versa, because this is the way to solve problems, just not work in silos, but, uh, but you know, just collaborate between different specialties. It's very important. I'm learning a lot about uh, infectology and microbiology, and ID people are learning a lot about cardiology, and this is the beauty of medicine. And Dr. Singlani, I think the public service announcement here is for clinicians to not latch on to these preliminary reports and really hypotheses and to keep patients on the medications they are on now. But you did mention that there may be some... Um, something to suggest that there may be a therapeutic role of uh, angiotensin receptor blockers. It's obviously too early for prime time for that discussion, but do they really have any merit in your opinion? I don't know. I know that there's also trials uh, with camostat mesylate, which is a suppressor of of this other protease that works together with the ACE2. Because the problem seems to be that the ACE2 can be there or not, but if you don't have the protease or if you inhibit the protease, the TMPRSS2, uh, that is the key one that actually, you know, makes the, the entire complex go into the cell. So it's, it's very complex. But the other thing is that I read this, the, the Lancet paper, I read it relaxed and, you know, two weeks ago. And when I read it, it didn't occur to me that we should stop this because I read it with a different eyes. You know, if you read it, in the absence of this pandemic, you read the uh, this commentary in Lancet, and it actually raises the issue of need requiring more research of this uh, in, in this topic. But a week later, when people are panicking, 
you know, you read it and you look at what you want inside the article and say, oh, we should stop everything. And no, the article was not meant to suggest that. It was the media that suggested that. And the people who just read it very rapidly in trying to, you know, make this pandemic uh, uh, a little bit worse than it, it is. Um, I think that we should be very careful when we read out the data because um, it, it was just a hypothesis generating. And thanks to this uh, article that came in Lancet and another one that came in British Medical Journal, we are now learning a lot about this mechanism and maybe, you know, we'll help to come up with a solution. Yeah, Dr. Singalani, certain angiotensin converting enzyme 2 gene polymorphisms have been linked to diabetes, hypertension, and stroke. Do you think there may be ACE2 polymorphisms, which may result in increased or decreased susceptibility to the virus? Uh, that's a great question, and it's under investigation. So the quick answer is, I don't know, and I'm not sure that anybody knows. We do know that diabetic patients especially might have a polymorphism of the ACE2, and we don't know if that polymorphic change uh, is the same one that the virus is using to get into the cell. So again, this is another a uh, major uh, uh, stone that uh, we should not uh, assume things and think that by inhibiting or enhancing ACE2, we're going to be targeting that ACE2 that the virus needs. So a lot of data coming down the road also in that regard. It's really interesting how our clinical observations fuel basic science and then fuse basic science fuels our, our clinical endeavors. And I'm wondering, Dr. Singley, do you have uh, any thoughts about the therapeutic use of soluble form of ACE2? And let me preface this by saying that I read that there might be an idea that soluble ACE2 might not only help neutralize the virus itself by competitively binding the spike protein, but there's also thought that it may help increase the protective role of the membrane-bound form of ACE2. And um, there may be a clinical trial underway looking into that. I I know the same thing that you know, but so I haven't heard any more details about that. But I heard about that. the The complex issue is that the um, the binding of the ACE depends on the state of the angiotensin two level. So you're you're going to have a, a completely different uh, response in those with high angiotensin two levels compared to those with low angiotensin two levels. So that so that is. Sense. And, and even if you are not treated with an ACE inhibitor, even if you don't have heart failure, we treat hypertension with low or high renin states. So there's patients who have high levels of angiotensin 2 and others who have low levels of angiotensin 2. And we are now trying to measure certain substances to tailor therapy accordingly. Oh, very interesting. Thank you. With regards, there's also a lot in the media about ibuprofen um, and NSAIDs. Is that, how is that related? And what are your thoughts on that with well, regards so, to so, the ACE2? So ibuprofen is one of the medications that increases ACE2 expression, chronic uh-huh. ibuprofen. So this is the other thing. You know, I've heard from, actually from Argentina, uh, that I'm going to have a, uh, so I'm, they're going to do an interview via Skype uh, tomorrow for a, for a uh, TV channel in Argentina. And, and because in Argentina, there's this voice uh, going around, this gossip saying that nobody takes ibuprofen because it increases ACE2. And actually, it bleeds more. And they're confused because what they are having in Argentina is also dengue, which produces thrombocytopenia. And uh, in that regard, you, you can't take ibuprofen. But the truth is that ibuprofen increases ACE2 to the point that I'm not sure if I should not be on ibuprofen. And right. my if it's the same mechanism that we talked about with the... 
Absolutely. Eastern herbs. Yeah, very interesting. If by taking ibuprofen, I can raise my ACE2 expression right. in the lungs, I might actually get infected but not develop ARDS. Again, a hypothesis. Right? Yeah, very interesting. So, Dr. Singlani, we know that you've been using telemedicine uh, pretty broadly even prior to this pandemic. Now, with you know, with the pandemic of COVID nineteen, uh, a lot of people and healthcare providers are turning to telemedicine. Can you share with us any tips and tricks uh, with regards to the experience you've had thus far with telemedicine? Yeah, so I think that you know we we as a healthcare providers are moving into telemedicine. I've been practicing telemedicine basically in my hypertension patients whom I see them the first time. I, uh, they get the, you know, the physical exam, the blood work, and we follow them via telemedicine. And I found that very, very promising. And we are having great, great results in, in, in terms of, especially when discussing side effects of the medications and when discussing titration of medications. Right. We we have been preventing patients from uh, stopping their their treatment thanks to telemedicine. So I think that this COVID nineteen pandemic is actually teeing us up to deploy this system, and it's going to be terrific. I think that the, one of the things that I've noticed is that you know a lot of people think that telemedicine is unpersonalized and that you lose connection with the patient. Well, I've been surprised of how relaxed I can have a conversation uh, through Skype or through phone for half an hour talking about things that I don't talk in the clinic and and making a, a connection with the patient that goes beyond the connection that we make in the clinic. Sometimes yeah, because, you know, we're we are not relaxed or, or there's noise or somebody knocks in the door or, or the patient needs to rush to another uh, appointment. Um, so I think that there's a great opportunity and we should take advantage of this uh, pandemic to rapidly deploy telemedicine service and test it. That's wonderful. Wow. No, I absolutely agree. That that will definitely be uh, at least, you know, one positive thing that will hopefully come out of this, the, you know, just building that infrastructure so that it's uh, more seamlessly utilized. And Dr. Singlana, do you anticipate telemedicine being um, used as kind of like a silver lining of potentially this pandemic, if we can even see a silver lining at this point, something that we will learn to use and implement, so saving a lot of our patients' time and hassle of coming into the clinic? And do you see that as something that can possibly happen going forward? I, I predict that this will happen. I hope I'm right, but I, I, I predict that this uh, is going to happen. And between us, I received an email to go through my see all my patients for the next month and risk stratify them and decide which of those can be followed by telemedicine and which of those should be rescheduled. So we are, Hopkins is actually working very, very aggressively with this in trying to implement by the end of this week, a telemedicine platform to start uh, being active. Wow. It's so nice to see this plan being put in action. Um, so this has been a wonderful discussion. Dr. Singlani, thank you so much for taking the time to teach us in this time of fear, uncertainty, and really ubiquitous misinformation, we are so grateful for experts like yourself keeping us grounded in the facts and guiding the care we give to patients like Ms. COVIDs. And just to emphasize the main takeaway for clinicians on the front lines taking care of patients is essentially an agreement with the major society guidelines to not 
preemptively take patients off ACEs and ARBs and other such really life-saving medications until or unless we have more information. So thank you, Dr. Singalani. No, thank you, guys. This has been terrific, and I totally agree with your closing remarks. Yes, and by the way, because you have been so generous with your time on the Cardio Nerd Show, as they say, no good deed goes unpunished. We hereby officially invite you to rejoin us in a few weeks down the road for a critical update on what we learn about the roles of ACE2 and the COVID virus. And I officially accept that. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Oh, wait. Kareen has an update for us. Oh, yes, absolutely. So friends, despite our best efforts, Miss Covids takes a turn for the worst on her way to the emergency room. Stay tuned to our next episode where we learn about critical care management of the cardiac patients in the ICU with Dr. David Ferfaro from Columbia University and Dr. Sam Bruska from the NIH. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. So it's time to make like an S2 and split. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioNerds. Don't forget to check out the amazing illustration that Kareen prepared for y'all at www.cardionerds.com. And please share what made your heart flutter this week. Send us a clip to CardioNerds at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, be a nerd and spread the word. And now a flutter moment. Hey, Cardio Nerds. Just wanted to say that I love the show. My name's Steven, and I'm an orthopedic surgery resident at Georgetown University Hospital. What makes my heart flutter is coming home post-call to see my wife and baby daughter. She just turned three months old and is the best part of every day. One day, I'm just going to yell at my kids. Hold on. Guys, I'm recording. Guys, recording. Stay upstairs. (laughs) I love Dan's family. I know. Oh, wait for me. Wait, wait for mine. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's always sweet when people's families come in, like, in the middle of the interview.